May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. My text this morning is the Gospel reading, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. These six verses are taken from the fourth discourse that Matthew writes about Jesus teaching the disciples. He's in Capernaum. This is before he goes into Jerusalem where he will go to the cross. Today's gospel lesson concerns conflicts between the members of the future church. Verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Your brother or sister is your fellow church member, not just anyone in your life. And sin means just that. Sin. God hates sin because it is the antithesis of his nature and because it harms us and it harms someone else. This message is about injuries. Injuries sustained in the church. We'll not be looking at felonies that are to be handled by the government. We'll not be looking at accidents that are unavoidable. We will be looking at injuries sustained in the church, abusive patterns of behavior, interpersonal conflict, lies, manipulation, emotional and spiritual abuse. The church is the ecclesia, people called out from the world to God, the being the mystical body of Christ. It includes this church and the church you attended before this and the church before that and the church before that, and the church universal. Jesus is addressing you, singular. You're aware of your brother's sin, and Jesus demands that you do something about it. Your brother sins against you, yet you have the responsibility to restore your brother. You've been done wrong. Not only are you to forgive your brother, you are to help restore him. The focus is on danger to your brother as a result of his sin. The wages of sin are death. Let's look first at forgiving, forgiving our brother. Forgiveness fully embraces the fact that sin matters. Forgiveness is not approving of what the other person has done, minimizing the offense or denying you have been wronged. Forgiveness is acknowledging that the other person has sinned against you and he may never be able to make it right. The Apostle Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving cannot mean diminishing the wrong they've done. God could never do that with sin and remain just, for he is just and holy. Wrong is wrong, and sin is sin. 
Forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation or restoration of your relationship with your brother. And it does not require restoring trust or inviting the people who hurt you back into a relationship with you. Forgiveness is unconditional. We must do it. Meaningful reconciliation is conditional. Reconciliation is conditional on the offender's genuine repentance, humble willingness to accept the consequences of his actions, and a desire by both parties to work on the relationship. Forgiving your brother does not mean he will not experience the consequences of his sin. When you forgive him, however, you leave those consequences to God. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Forgiveness is costly. In the Bible, it involves shedding of blood. It involves sacrifice and death. And often the very first step of forgiving feels like death. You want to cling to your right to be angry. And often resent being asked to give that up. It all seems so unfair. Your flesh stands still and demands some type of retribution. Your resistance to forgiving shows clearly that you need God's help to truly forgive. You are to confront your brother. In our culture, confronting our brother is viewed as intrusive. What I do in my life is my own business, and it's no concern to you. Each person is on a quest to find his own path. The rebuke of sin is certainly unwelcome. It's seen as intrusive, abusive, and possibly even absurd. Your rebuke may clash with your brother's view of himself. Even the church universal has devalued the painful but essential task of confronting sin. The culture values individualism, which says each person is unique and he may find fulfillment through self-expression. People believe they are guided by their own inner voice, their own inner compass. But someone has hurt you. Come on, don't you have the right to retaliate? Well, what usually happens? You go tell someone else. You tell them how badly you've been treated by your brother. And that person tells another, and that person tells another. And eventually, the offender hears your complaint. But if you confront him now, what will happen? The offender will call you a gossip or a troublemaker. Will your brother listen to you now? What if the offender is powerful, irascible, self-righteous, or even some sort of leader? This could become dramatic. How do you begin to go about forgiving your brother? Remember, you must forgive, and you must forgive before you confront. Maybe you could say a prayer like this. 
Lord, will you make me willing to forgive? You've forgiven all my sins. My sins are great. Forgiving my brother by comparison is really a small matter. But I cannot do this without you. Please help me. Often God will change your heart. And when he does, he may reveal the wounds of your brother. Your brother who has hurt you. Wounds that do not diminish, justify, or excuse the offense. But your attitude, your attitude toward your brother may soften. Once engaged in this process, you might name for yourself what has happened and all the negative repercussions from his actions and words. Include everything, what you've lost, what has been hard, how it's made you feel, and what has been the cost. You want to know what you were letting go of before you let go. For most offenses, forgiveness is both an initial decision to let go of bitterness as well as a long, ongoing process. Later, when offenses come to mind and painful memories resurface, stop rehearsing them. Ask the Lord to help you release those thoughts and practice forgiveness. And so now comes the time to actually confront him. The proper thing is to confront your brother privately and show him his fault. The aim is not to score points over him, but to win him over. For all discipline, even this private sort, must begin with redemptive purposes. Jesus assumes that the individual who personally confronts a brother will do so with true humility. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If it is hard to accept a rebuke, even a private one, it's harder still to administer one in loving humility. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your brother, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Paul encouraged Timothy to reprove erring members of the church with love and with patience. Taking revenge merely perpetuates an injustice and sometimes magnifies it out of all proportion. Vengeance as such belongs solely to God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The course for the Christian to follow in such cases was exemplified by Jesus. First Peter 2 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As the Lord has forgiven you, Colossians 3.13 says, So you also must forgive. 
So to truly forgive those who have wronged you, you must first receive God's forgiveness, acknowledging your need before him, which empowers you to forgive others. Christian forgiveness is vertical before it's horizontal. Throughout Scripture, our Lord intertwines his forgiveness of us with our forgiveness of others. Matthew 6.14 makes all this completely clear. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. All his commands are for our own good and for the good of our brother. We pray every Sunday. Forgive us our trespasses as we Forgive those who trespass against us. So far you've heard about telling your brother his fault. Will you do it? We're talking about sin in the church. The Lord wants the church to be holy and righteous. Any sin is defilement. Our scripture says you can gain your brother if you tell him his sin. Do you know you can lose your brother? Yes, you can lose your brother if you do not. If you can find your brother in the church, you can lose your brother in the church. Do you love your brother? Do you love your brother enough to tell him of his sin so that he may repent and be restored in his relationship with God and perhaps with you? Beyond that, and perhaps more importantly, removing sin from the church is an accommodation to the unsaved. If they were to be convicted of their sin, how can that happen if the temple is defiled? If they're not convicted, how can they be penitent and then receive the grace of our Lord Jesus? Do you love your brother enough to restore him? Do you love your church enough for it to be holy? You must love your brother enough to tell him his fault between you and him alone. When confronted, your brother may do all those things you can imagine. Your brother may simply leave. Nonetheless, Jesus commands you to confront sin directed at you. If your brother listens to you, you have won your brother. The man you have gained becomes, in some sense, your own. The healed body of a patient doesn't become the property of the physician, and the house doesn't become the property of the fireman who put out the fire. But your brother somehow becomes your own. He receives forgiveness from God. He's restored. He's whole. He's like the sheep. You searched and searched and searched and you found him. 
There's joy in that. Perhaps there's reconciliation in that as well. Verse 16 says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 19:15, which regulates evidence in a court of law. Nobody is to be convicted on the evidence of a single person, but there should be two, or better, three witnesses. Now, Jesus is not, of course, talking about a trial here. And in any case, the one or two others are not witnesses to the offense. They can testify only that they have tried to help the offender. Jesus is saying that the church must not apply less stringent tests than the courts. All must be done with care and fairness. All efforts should be made to keep this procedure confidential, even when more people are added. 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. It may be necessary to tell the church, and that's painful. Eventually, it simply will not do to conduct these things behind closed doors. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If the wrongdoer will not listen to the church, he must be removed from it and become an outsider. In these matters, the church must be transparent. <laughs> we don't like the sound of this. But we need to ask what the alternatives are. If there is real, real evil involved, refusal to face it means a necessary break of fellowship. Reconciliation can only come after the problem has been faced. And the Anglican Church, the rector, and our bishop would be involved before such a grave matter would be brought before the entire church. Certainly the bishop would be involved before anyone would be removed from the church. And even in such a dire case, we hold on to the hope for eventual restoration of our brother. We're still fighting for his very soul. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. We're not left on our own in all of this. As we struggle to become the sort of church Jesus demands. God's presence is with us. Our actions on earth have an extra hidden dimension. The heavenly counterpart of what we do here. If we lose our brother from sin, he's already been loosed in heaven. Verse 19. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. When we pray together in Christian fellowship, we're assured of being heard and answered. And finally, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This promise is central to everything that Christians do. He is present 
That's not just a promise that you'll sense his presence. He is present. To collect for purity, Sunday begins, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. He knows everything. You can take these words seriously. You know he's present during worship, and he's also present during the restoration of your brother. Prayer is offered to a mighty God, one who commonly does his greatest work on earth in response to the prayers of his humble people. God is always present with his people. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make, if I make my bed and shield, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. But he does more than hold our hand, doesn't he? God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has made a way for our salvation. He has paid the price on the cross. Jesus is not mad at you. He will forgive you. But you must come to him asking for his forgiveness. Ask him into your heart. Ask him to be the Lord of your life. Or recommit yourself and ask him again to be the Lord of your life. Amen.